This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. In this interview, GHIL Research Fellow for Modern History Ole Münch and PR and Events Officer Kim Koenig talked to Ute Frevert about her research behind her lecture on the power of emotions in German history. Thanks again for taking the time to give us a short interview. We are indeed very keen on learning more about the research behind your talk as well as your forthcoming book on powerful emotions in German history. So maybe we could start by you telling us a bit more about your research project. Yes, thank you. I actually wanted to write a book on German history of the 20th or the long 20th century, starting in the late 19th, ending, well, um, today, tomorrow, that tells the story or that focuses on emotions. So telling the story of Germany's 20th century history through the lens of emotion. And I used the format of a lexicon from A to Z, in German at least it works, in English it doesn't, um, <laughs> in order to structure the book. Uh, and that might come as a surprise because usually historians don't write lexicons. I mean, they participate in writing lexicons, but they don't write monographs in lexicon. And I still try to do that in order to achieve two things at a time. First, show how emotions and the type of emotions that I chose have or powerfully influence history, are a, an element of change. My second task and mission, in a way, was to point at the historicity of emotions. So not to imply that emotions that we know and experience and talk about today are exactly the same as the ones that were maybe labeled as such, but as I contend, uh, have been experienced and have meant different things, say, 130 years ago. If you say that you would like to point out the historicity of emotions, I was wondering, is your project a purely academic one? Or would you also like to address a wider public? Or is it like a, a political contribution maybe to raise awareness? My audience or the audience that I wished for, not expected, but wished for, uh, is broader than the relatively small number of colleagues that usually read academic books. So I think I did write an academic book. So I have footnotes. I give evidence of what I, uh, about my, my hypotheses or my arguments. At the same time, the style of writing is explicitly meant to attract a larger, a broader group of readers. And that has something to do with how the book came about. It's uh, an outpour of or outpouring of an exhibition that 
I curated together with my youngest daughter, who is also a historian, but she is not an academic historian, but really kind of works in political education, so works with younger people. And the two of us then curated this exhibition together, which was a, an exhibition that was shown really all over the place in about 2,500 or even more locations, uh, not just in Germany, but also abroad. And it was not shown in universities or pretty rarely, but it was shown in town halls, in adult education centers, in schools and the like. So we were targeting this other audience in that very exhibition. And I kept that target of at least the the attempt and the wish to reach this audience by the book and by the way it's it's been written. Thank you for this elaborate answer. So one other thing I was I was wondering um I believe you have come a long way studying emotions in history. So I was wondering why the focus? What got you on this special approach in the first place? Um, explicitly, um, it started with a research group that I put in place after I, I had received a, a very, very large grant in Germany, the Leibniz Prize. And I hired a number of young PhD students and postdocs to work with me on trust. That was in 1998. Uh, so very well, pretty early in the day and more than 20 years ago. And very, very few people actually, well, nobody in, in history, uh, except for Geoffrey Hosking in, in the UK, took an interest in that very topic. And I did because I thought that trust is a, well, uh, a central emotion and mm -hmm. a central, also not just an emotion, but a central emotional practice that is crucial for all kinds of transactions in politics as much as in economics, in personal relations, as well as in more abstract relations. And the more we worked on trust and the more we got into all these discussions, where can we find trust? How is it being defined? What are actually the practices associated with this emotion? The more I got kind of hooked. <laughs> and when I then in 2007 was recruited or hired by the Max Planck Society, which comes with um, offering you loads and loads of money to work on a subject of your own choice and hire young people to work with you. I thought, well, that's the, the opportunity now to really kind of put it on a larger uh, scale and, and not just work on trust, but also on other emotions. And I should also mention that I'm not the only director at this Institute for Human Development in Berlin. There are others, and those are mostly psychologists. And so I also kind of wanted to facilitate cooperation and discussions with mm -hmm. psychologists. And they, of course, are <laughs> traditionally the, uh, the discipline that uh, has uh, thought about emotions for quite some time. Right. I believe you made the subject quite popular in Germany. <laughs> um, I hope so. <laughs> it wasn't as popular in the 2000, if I remember correctly. Um, so I've got one last question. And that is because at the GHIL, we are not only interested in German history, but also in English history. And um, I, for one, I have done research on 19th century English history. And I quite often stumbled across this kind of cliche that the German per se is a very emotional man 
And uh, the English, in contrast, is like um, rational, driven by, by, by profit and not by emotions and like the avant-garde of calculation, rational modernity. And I was wondering if, if in your book you also touch upon this emotional comparative aspect or is it something you found in your sources maybe these ascriptions i guess they are live up until today yes thank you ole <laughs> that prejudice is is not of course unknown to me i mostly found it in in sources of the 19th century rather mm -hmm. than the 20th century though and it doesn't point at anything you know factual There are no such things as an unemotional people and emotional politics have functioned very, very well in British history as much as in German history, I would, I would argue. But these emotions um, or a certain emotional kind of uh, repertoire or behavior is very often used in order to point out national, and not just national differences, but also national hierarchies. So in the 19th century, the tradition was the more emotional, the more gemüt you have, the more, the deeper you are, you know, deepest deep thinkers. The French can't do that. They are, they have a lot of esprit, but they can't do the deep thinking. And mm. then the deep feeling, uh, being really emotionally aroused, being touched by things, that's again, something that only Germans can do, but British can't, because as you say, they're always after, they're running after the money. So, um, but that's, that's kind of, it's, it, it's, it's also a kind of emotional politics and uh, shows how much emotions have been used in political discourse, in mm. public uh, debate, but also in, in private in order to mark differences. Now, when it comes to the book that is now just been translated into English, I did not do explicit comparisons, but I did stumble across quite a number of difficulties in translating certain emotions that in German make perfect sense into English. For example, and that also shows that there are differences in the emotional lexica that both societies use. Mm -hmm. For example, the um, emotion of geborgenheit was extremely hard to translate into English. We then finally settled on belonging, but belonging by far does not match the, the very complex and again, very, in a way, deep and warm feelings that are associated with the German term geborgenheit. Another issue is zuneigung, um, with, it's, it starts with uh, Z or Z, and thus forms uh, the end of, of the German version of the book. <laughs> In English, it's, and zuneigung is, is a beautiful word because it kind of, it's an, it's an emotion, but it also, not but, but and, it also kind of implies a certain gesture. You, you connect to somebody, you bend towards somebody, you know, you become close, you get closer to somebody. And that is very, very difficult to capture in, in English. Neither fondness or, nor affection really kind of match the meaning of Zuneigung. And that, again, made me think about national differences that, unfortunately, I could not tackle in that very book, but maybe will in another one. Hmm. <laughs> I was wondering, how do you conceptualize the um, the connection between the way we express emotions and the way we actually feel them? Because so the question is, does it make a difference when one language 
does have certain words to describe things and another language does not somehow connected to to the way people actually feel and behave maybe i do think that there is a very strong connection and it's not just my personal opinion but mm -hmm. it's shared by a lot of literature, both current literature or recent literature, and actually going back very far in time, you might feel something. You might feel that your body is kind of reacting in a certain way. As long as you don't have a name to give to that feeling, you can't, um, you're, you're basically left alone. You can't make sense of the feeling. And the sense-making and the contextualization and the value that you give to your very feeling is always mediated through language. Without language, there is no, well, there might be feeling, but you can't kind of, you can't conceptualize it. You can't make sense of it. And you can't communicate it. You can't tell anybody you can't share it with others because you have to have a label a name in order to share it and the name then allows you to work on it to practice it to uh, reflect it uh, even so language is absolutely important and it also kind of reflects back on the feeling as such it kind of it gives it a certain space in the number in the range of feelings that you that you dispose of so language is not the only way to express emotions. We do have a lot of bodily possibilities to express what we feel. But then again, when we see another person crying or hiding his face or her face, we immediately associate or tend to associate it with a feeling that is again put in language Mm. Maybe, you know, shame or grief in, in, in these very instances. And then we react on, uh, again, these, these mediated forms of, um, of language. Okay, thank you. Uh, Kim, do you have any questions? Just one last question, perhaps unrelated directly to your research, but I was wondering what your connection to the UK is. I saw that you're also um, a fellow in Britain, but I was wondering whether you have a connection to Great Britain as well. I do, I do, and a very long one. Um, I uh, spent, during my student years, I spent one year, 1974, five, uh, at the LSE in London, and that was extremely important for my own, you know, kind of um, academic, but also political and, and uh, yeah, political formation. I then had many, many, or still have many colleagues, both now senior, but also junior in Britain. We have British colleagues in, in our research center. Um, there, are there are very kind of strong and ongoing corporations. And then finally, I became this corresponding fellow of the British Academy and also used this position to, well, to kind of meet people, but also indoors or support and, and facilitate academic careers in Britain. So I'm very, very closely connected to Britain. And that's also something why I'm so much looking forward to, um, to the book being published in English so that it can find a British audience. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, then uh, thanks a lot for the interview. Thanks um, for your questions. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.